welcome to another edition of the Daily Sun Sports Podcast. My name is Jeff Shane, Daily Sun columnist and managing editor. And with me as always around the table, we have Drew Shaltree and Cody Hills. We're going to do a little bit of catching up on the uh, high school sports front uh, to start off today. It's been a few weeks. We have gone through most of the regular season, in some cases all of the regular season, as the VHS soccer teams get ready to begin their district playoffs. Uh, We'll also talk some golf. We had the LPGA just down the road at Lake Nona, where Brooke Henderson put on a dominating performance, perhaps surprisingly so, considering all she went through during the offseason. And then uh, we will talk about the uh, NFL playoffs. We are down to four teams, San Francisco and Philadelphia on the NFC side, Kansas City and Cincinnati on the AFC side. JT Wilcox and Ryan Weiss will join us for that. But first of all, let's catch up on the high school scene. Cody and Drew, lots of basketball going on, lots of winning streaks going on. We'll start with the VHS boys. They just had a winning streak snapped, but they are still uh, well atop the uh, district standings. Yeah, they are. Yeah, sitting at 12-7 and overall, heading into a matchup tonight, Tuesday night, against uh, Forest, which should be a really good matchup up in Ocala for them. But yeah, it won six straight leading up into a loss uh, at the end of last week against Central Florida Christian Academy in a game that went to overtime, and that comes from the last time they played those guys. It was three overtime, so there's something about extra basketball. When they the managed Buffalo... to cut it down, though. Yes, yeah, <laughs> they did, yeah, and save some time and at, at, at the deadline hour, for me anyways. But, you know, they're on a really good run there, I thought, for a while. A lot of things that they had maybe plagued them early in the season, which, of course, we've talked about the tough schedule, but a lot of things that brought to light just some of their – maybe some of the – a little bit some selfish play at times. Uh, some guys maybe looking out for themselves individually instead of playing the way that the culture and the DNA of their program sets up for them to be successful. They've got to play a, a really cohesive uh, brand of basketball. But I thought throughout this winning streak that they, you know, they hadn't lost since uh, December 28th, I believe. You had to go back to, and then they, you know, we're talking almost a full month of playing winning basketball, doing things the right way, and then they sort of just unraveled the other night last week, uh, last Friday night against Central Florida Christian Academy. Did a lot of things that they hadn't done during this win streak, uh, some careless turnovers, um, you know, not playing really good defense with, with good communication. You usually can hear them. They're very loud, especially in their zone defensive looks. They were not whatsoever last Friday night. And uh, head coach Colt McDowell, pretty pretty blunt and honest, just said, we just put on a clinic on how to lose a basketball game and snap a winning streak. So, We'll see if they can right the ship here Tuesday night, uh, tonight against Forrest. Um, and then we've got a couple games this Friday and Saturday night as well coming up at the end of this week. But kind of a big stretch for them, I think, here. Just sort of they had the win streak. They were feeling good about themselves. It gets snapped in a really bad game, a bad loss where you're leading mm-hmm. by 13 with seven minutes to go and leading by double digits still with four minutes to go. I end up losing that one in overtime. And... So it's now you're kind of at this crossroads where do you let one loss turn into two or three or snowball together or do you or are they a good team? I think we're going to find out if they're a good team or not. Do they sort of do what good teams do and put this bad loss behind them and come together and, and rattle off a few more wins here late in the regular season? What's your sense? Uh, is, was it just a night of complacency, which does happen when you go on a longer winning streak? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, there were some habits that were maybe actually starting to form a little bit towards the end of that winning streak against a good team like CFCA, where I mean they're really well coached, good athletes coming out of that uh, coming out of the land. I mean that's 
coming out of the Orlando area where the margin for error is really small. So when you have a night where you're not playing at your best, that's a team that very easily can jump up and bite you, and they certainly did. To me, I, I think this is a better team than a month ago, the Villages. I think they're a better team than two months ago. I think they're doing what this program's kind of historically done here in the last eight years under Colt McDowell, and that's they've gotten better as the season's gone on. They're starting to get into a portion of the schedule here uh, especially after this week wraps up, where they'll have their final two weeks of the regular season where they're facing teams that are a little more in their area and in, in their region. You know, they've started to face teams like, you know, Trinity Catholic. They're going to get Umatilla, you know, Mount Dora. They're going to South Sumter. They're facing teams around here that they're more familiar with. It's going to allow them, I think, to fine-tune things, and I think they will. I think I think last Friday night was a little bit more one-off, I guess I would say. Some things coming to head a little bit, but I, I do think that they are in a position where they're growing, they're learning, they're following the lead of Sam Walters, and uh, when you have when you do that, you're in a pretty good spot. I was going to ask about Sam Walters. I mean, understanding that this is a team and that there is other talent around him, but how is Sam going through this senior season? Yeah, really well. 22.7 points per game and, and 11.2 rebounds a game, so anytime you're averaging a double-double, it's pretty darn good. But, you know, I think what he's been able to do, and, and we've seen recently, I think, moments where I think Sam Walters is a junior. Obviously, I didn't see him as a sophomore when he's at Montverde Academy, but and, and certainly Sam Walters is a freshman. There'd be moments this year where if you go back in time, he would get frustrated. He You would see the body language change. You'd see his shoulders slump down a little bit, and that hasn't been the case for him this year. He He's really sort of took on the brunt of – knowing that there are other ways that he can impact a game, whether it's through his defense, whether it's through, you know, finding the open man when he is double and even triple teamed at times. We've talked about he's facing junk defenses. He's facing defenses designed specifically to stop and slow him down and frustrate him. And he's very often getting the antagonist of other teams and trying to get (laughs) under his uh, skin a little bit. And he's handled it really well. And because he's handled it well, I think other guys are picking up cues of that, uh, picking up the cue of of just being calm in the moment and and being comfortable in tight situations. Chris Washington Jr., the freshman, has really come on here these last couple weeks. I I thought he's been tremendous. He's been phenomenal, both scoring and rebounding. Kamani Weathers has come on. That's two freshmen, Chris Washington Jr. and Kamani Weathers, who are going to be really talented, you know, I think high major guys when their careers are said and done, no no pressure on them. But I think that's sort of the expectations for themselves and the expectations that the program has for them. They're getting solid play out of Ben Kubek coming in, kind of that hybrid guard forward position that he is uh, in his junior role. And then Alvon Isaac has really kind of come into his own as a point guard. Be remiss not to mention, I think they're going to get Kuzorian Kennedy back uh, at some point, potentially this week, maybe even tonight against Forrest. You know, he hasn't played since suffering a torn ACL in the green and gold football scrimmage back in May, lost all throughout the football season. Would have been a huge key for the Buffalo football team. Was really looking forward to his services as a guard on the basketball team this year. And then we finally might get a look at him. He's been practicing here the last week or two. So hopefully good for him. He gets back on the floor. And, and again, that's just it all kind of follows around Sam, though. As he goes, this team goes. And it doesn't have to be with scoring for him. He's realized that, and that makes him just infinitely better as a team. Let's turn our attention to the Wildwood boys now as we bring in Drew. They've also had a lengthy winning streak, and uh, they have a big game tonight as we record on Tuesday morning, a rematch against Leesburg from a really good game just a few weeks ago. 
Yeah, that was a, a great matchup. Obviously, Leesburg and Wildwood, historic rivals. They go way, way back, and it seems like every time they get in the gym together, it's always a great game, very similar to the matchups between the Villages and Wildwood or Wildwood and South Sumter in recent years as South Sumter's uh, program has gotten a little bit stronger. But yeah, they have been playing really, really well. And I think that, you know, this is going to be a tough one for them tonight. Going on the road to Leesburg, Leesburg's a little bit extra motivated. Cameron James, their best player, got in foul trouble in that game. And I know that he was a little bit upset that he didn't get to have more of an impact on that one. So in front of his home crowd and a gym that tends to be pretty ruckus and packs out, uh, it's going to be hard to park there. So show up early, as Cody has <laughs> learned a couple of times. Uh, you definitely have to get to Leesburg early uh, if you want to park for a game like this. But yeah, Wildwoods, uh, they're kind of rolling right now. And I think that that team's in a, in a really good spot at the moment. Monday night, they played Mount Dora Christian Academy for senior night, and that was a team that they'd lost to earlier in the season, another you know rematch against a local Lake County rival. And I thought that what they did, starting you know pretty poorly, a little bit of a shaky start, uh, with it being senior night, Coach Lyles decided to you know go ahead and start five of the seniors. And I think there was a little bit of not confusion, but a little bit of a disjointed start just with it being a different kind of lineup than usual. Sure. And, you know, taking out someone like Aiden Corbin, who's so valuable from a scoring and ball handling uh, standpoint, kind of, I think, affected them a little bit. And they just weren't hitting shots in that first half. But they come back from a double-digit deficit, lead for pretty much the entire fourth quarter, hold off a really strong, really disciplined, experienced veteran Bulldogs team, held Kyson Pruitt, who's going to Marshall next year, to 14 points. Uh, which is pretty solid, yeah. all things considered, and got out of that gym with a win on a night where they needed it. And I think that that was a good sign to see them kind of overcome a slow start like they had where they weren't shooting the ball well at all in the first half. Kind of a similar situation to the last time they faced Mount Dora Christian. To get the correct result this time, I think, was a big step for them. Where does that kind of set Wildwood up in terms of we are looking ahead to the playoffs that are coming up right around the corner. Yeah, they're in an interesting spot in that they've changed districts this year. So it's a lot of familiar opponents because 1A is not that big. But mm-hmm. uh, a lot of teams that they haven't had to contend with for, for district competition before. There's also a, a new situation for them this year in that the district that they're in is doing single site tournaments. And that's not something that they've done in the past. Wildwood typically plays at home all the way through the district tournament because they used to allow 1A to have the better seed host uh, whenever mm-hmm. they wanted. So to avoid teams having to travel huge distances multiple times in the span of a week, you know, you get situations like a couple of years ago when Crescent City went down to Fort Meade and then had to turn around and come back to Wildwood like a night later, two nights later, something like that. So, But Wildwood's now in a district that's mostly centered around Gainesville, and so they're going to travel up to Bronson to play their district tournament. Uh, I think that they'll be in pretty good shape. They're going to come off of some pretty tough games here in the final few that they have. They're all going to be on the road, but three rivalry games, a couple more chances for some revenge. Obviously, they got Leesburg tonight. They'll have South Sumter, who played them really hard a couple weeks ago on the road this time in Bushnell, and that South Sumter team is champing at the bit to get back at Wildwood. It's been 13 straight wins for the Wildcats in that series. And so the the Red Raiders would really like to get one back. They've come close a couple of times, almost did it on Wildwood's floor earlier this season. Wow. So you can bet that the Jim and Bushnell will be packed out and they'll be hoping for that win finally. And then they're going to go to Umatilla again, a chance to avenge a loss from earlier in the season. And then they're going to end it, end it on the road against Lake Weir next week. So uh, plenty of preparation, good teams to play against to get ready for that district tournament. And then it's just a matter of you know getting through that district, 
they stumbled last year at Hawthorne. We've talked a lot about Hawthorne and how kind of snake bitten Wildwood has been there in every sport. But this year, Hawthorne not going to be you know part of that scenario. But after last year, what happened to them? Thinking that they were going to be safe making it into the district, having an upset in the other district in the region, costing them a playoff spot. They want to make sure that they get through the district with the win this year. Take care of business yourself, as That's right. always. The Wildwood girls. Still one loss on the year. They've gone more than a month since that loss. They seem to be in really good shape as they hit their home stretch. Yeah, and avenged that loss as well. That was a tough one for them at Gainesville High. Gainesville comes down to Wildwood, and they pretty well reversed that one, beat them pretty handily. They're absolutely cruising right now. Haven't faced you know the toughest schedule that they've ever played this year. It's certainly not quite on the level of what they played last year. But given all the turnover this year with a new coach, a lot of new players. You know, four. We've talked about it before. Four of the five starters from last year's regional and state playoff run no longer with the team. So they played a little bit more locally based schedule, not as demanding as what they had in the past with you know some of the the top teams in 2A and 3A and 4A but you know still playing some quality teams went out got a good holiday tournament in played one of the best girls teams uh, in lower lower classification from I believe Tennessee came out with a win in that tournament so they're on a roll right now uh, I don't see them losing again going all the way through their district. So uh, they'll be on the road as well. They're going to be playing up at Trenton, which historically has been uh, a good rival for Wildwood girls basketball, but hasn't been quite as competitive in the last couple of years. Those two teams used to have some great regional tilts back in the Kari Nyblack days when Wildwood was going on to compete for and win state championships. And they're at that level again. I think they'd like to see Trenton get back to that level again because it's always good to have you know, somebody to, you know, set your sights on in that district and regional tournament. As far as trying to project, I mean, we are talking about turnover from a state Final Four team, but how does this team stack up looking ahead to its postseason? So based on what I know about the other teams in their district and region, they're not going to face competition that should give them trouble until the state Final Four. I think that they are almost a lock for Lakeland. If you could bet legally in Florida on high school sports, I would say that take Wildwood at whatever <laughs> odds they give you because it's just going to be money to make it to the state semifinals. That's not saying it's not possible for there to be an upset. Of, of course, course of course, that's always uh, always a possibility. But I think that with those two guards, Zoe Brown and Trinity Harris, they're just capable of running on every single team in a way that most 1A programs are not used to or capable of keeping up with the the speed that they present the the small lineup you know they're not the best shooting team they're not a great half court team but they're incredibly good defensively uh they will press you until you break and they can just get out and run on you all night long and i think that that's enough to get you to that final point now once you get to lakeland it's obviously a little bit different game. It's a bigger court. You know, the running gets a little bit harder, which I mean is going to affect both teams. But it's something that you have to overcome. You have to make shots, and that's what killed Wildwood last year. They couldn't make their threes in that gym. So I think that um, you know it, it'll be interesting to see what happens when this team that's very very young gets to Lakeland. But I'm pretty confident in saying that they will get to Lakeland. We'll go to the VHS girls, and Cody, I know you haven't seen a ton of this team, but this not on, this always set up as a team that was going to be built around Zoe Tunnell, and now that injuries have hit that roster, it really has become Zoe and not much else. Yeah, and like you said, it sort of had to be. 
But I don't think I've been sitting here trying to think because I knew you were going to ask me this, and I've been sitting here trying to think: Has there been a player in this program's history for the VHS girls that's ever been more conditioned or more primed to sort of take on the weight that she has? And I don't think there's there has ever been. Um, I think just what she's brought, not only as what she does on the floor, which has been tremendous, you know, what three forty-point games in three the last point m- month or yeah. whatever it is, um, and you know, I think she has the four highest single-game scoring records for uh, the four highest single-game point performances in program history now. Um, so it's not only what she does on the floor, but s- sort of how she's come along as a leader. You know, I, I, when I had a chance to talk to her earlier this year, um, actually before the season even started. It was sort of also similar to somewhat Wildwood. There was a transition for this Buffalo program. There was a lot of a lot of seniors to party and a couple transfers headed out as well. And so it was a lot of girls who I think there was three that had varsity playing experience, uh, you know, and, and that includes her. So she's had to come kind of come along as a leader too. And I think we've seen that. I, I've heard that. I've read that. A little bit I've get to see uh, of their team play. I mean, you're starting to notice that. And it's not only on the offensive end. It's not only with her starting to trust the other teammates around her when, when she's able to, when she doesn't have to shoulder the load. But also defensively, she's become a lot more just vocal. The communication is there with her. I think she's made Marquez Porter Jr., the head coach of VHS, really happy because he's sort of – help develop her in a way that she's going to be ready for the next level now. And, and when she came in, she was talented, right? When she came in as a sophomore coming over from South Sumter, I really thought, okay, yeah, she's going to be a good player. I didn't know if she was good enough to play at the next level. And sort of how she's developed her career here, not only is she going to play at the next level, I think she's going to stick there as well. So she's been fun to watch. She's been fun to take sort of this this leap from a really good player to – I think it's fair to say probably the best player that that program has ever had. As well as Zoe has played, and she's, as we mentioned, there's, she's had three 40-point games now, coming off a 44-point performance against Lake Weir. But the danger here is that there is, at, at this point, with Narjani Harris out for the rest of the season, with uh, Eva Watterson uh, hurting her hand in Monday night's game against Lake Weir. How does that set up the supporting cast? Yeah, it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be interesting to see. You know, the, just the one regular season game left this evening against the Rock out of Gainesville, and then you get into a, a period of postseason play where you're facing familiar teams. Right, it looks like they're gonna be the fifth seed in this district tournament. Now, just lose by seven. You know, as you mentioned last night to Lake Weir, who's gonna be the number one seed in the district. They split with Eustace, who's the two seed this year. They, uh, you know, uh, win on a loss there. Beat Umatilla, who I think will be end up being the three or the four seed. So they have, they can prove they can compete. But now that the stage gets a little bit bigger, it's a winner go home type scenario for them. Essentially, I do have to wonder now. You're going to face a defense who knows that it's the Zoe Tunnell show, and that's pretty much it. That's what I was thinking. You were talking about junk defenses against Sam Walters. It's a very much a similar situation, and unfortunately, I think, or the more challenge, I think, more for Marquez Porter Jr., the girls' head coach, than Colt McDowell, the boys' head coach. I think that supporting cast just isn't there yet for the Buffalo, and it doesn't help that Nah Harris is out for the year, you know, and Eva Watterson dealing with what she has. I mean, it'd be interesting to see if, if Jaya Hamilton, maybe what she can do in that other guard position, try to alleviate some of the pressure off of Zoe Tunnell. If nothing else, then to just allow Zoe Tunnell to not have to bring the ball up the floor, let let her kind of get set into some offensive sets and move around some screens a little bit. 
because that's something I know that Marquez Porter likes doing is try to get her off screens and some catch and shoot uh, scenarios. But yeah, as you said, I think it's going to be really tough for them in the postseason when when scouting and game planning really in the regular season, all these teams know you're going to get to the districts regardless, and it's what you do when you get there. It might take a, I think Drew joke off the air, it might take a 50-point game. It might take Maybe. 45, 50 for, from Zoe Tennell for this team to advance and make a little bit of a run in the postseason. It just might, just because of the surrounding cast around her, it's just not at full strength. But it should be fun to watch if she can do it. Um <laughs> It'd be worth the price of admission for sure. But, yeah, I think the best is yet to come. I think if, if Zoe Chanel is going to have even a bigger moment, it's going to come here in this district tournament because, like we've said, it, it's tough to see the pieces around her. They just aren't there yet, and it it's that cyclical motion. I think we talked about it before the season, the cyclical the cycle of high school athletics. Right now they're just in a down year, this program. They had the transfers. They lost the you know three or four seniors that they did. The inexperience is just there, but if nothing else, this this the way that they've played this year, I think they're 12-8 and eight overall this year. They're going to finish with a 500-plus record. I honestly would not have pegged them for a 500-plus record at the start of this year with, with the lack of experience they've had. So it's a credit to Coach Port. It's a credit to Zoe Tunnell kind of shouldering the load for them. And who knows? Maybe she'll throw a 50-burger up and we'll have something fun to talk about <laughs> that, in a week. That would be fun to talk about. Let's turn our attention to soccer. Uh, VHS uh, going to be the number one seed in districts, both sides, boys and girls. Boys finish strong, girls a little bit bumpy down the stretch. Yeah, the girls, in fairness to them, played sort of a bumpy schedule down the stretch. They went to Lake Brantley, who's a very, very good team. Lots of them 6-0. They go on the road for their finale against Mount Dora, traditional rival. Uh, always a very competitive game. Lose that one out Mount Dora 3-2. But they took care of business, beat the brakes off at Tavares 8-0, won their other game uh, in that final week. So they've done kind of what they were expected to do to an extent in a lot of those matches, and especially with how the season's kind of gone for this team. Obviously, they lost one of their best players on the squad in Anna Rausch in that first game. Uh, they've not had a lot of depth scoring the the soccer ball. It's It's been a challenge for Brian Rausch to kind of figure out what the best configuration to sustain generating offense is all season long. And I think that they've kind of finally found something. He was hesitant to do it for a while, at least for, for starting a game, just because that back line played so well together. But he's taken Emma Johnson out of the center back position, moved Molly Parody over and replaced her at the wing back spot on the right side. And uh, moved her up top because she's just a, a confident, fast player. And she actually, I think, had a hat trick against Tavares in that you know, blowout win that they had against the Bulldogs. That's gotten going well for them. Someone to pair with Lily Goller, someone for her to to play back and forth with, someone who can move the ball with a little bit of confidence, who's not afraid to take a shot, can put a little bit of pace on the ball, I think has been big for them. And going into this district tournament, they're going to be the one seed. They're going to play the winner of the 4-5 game this Friday night. And I think that just with the schedule that they've played because he did deliberately challenge them. They finished the season 5-4-4, four, and four, but they played some tough, tough teams to get there. I think that they are equipped to win this district pretty easily. It's going to feel a lot better than a lot of what they experienced in the regular season. Obviously, once you get to the regional rounds in 4A, it's so difficult, especially in the area where they are, where you're facing a lot of you know strong private schools out of Tampa and Lakeland. But I think at least as far as the districts are concerned, I think that VHS girls are in a pretty good spot. And we'll turn our attention to the boys. They finally, after a season where this guy's been out and that guy has been out, they're finally finished at full strength, and they will also be top seed. Yeah, and they're poised to to do really well. That was a team that 
came into the year and we didn't really know what to expect. They had so many players graduate in that class of 2022 and, and not just a lot of players, a lot of really high quality players, guys that have been starters since they were freshmen or in the case of Peyton Roush and eighth graders. So, I mean, guys that had had massive impacts on really, really successful runs for this Buffalo program and you're replacing almost all of them. I think it was eight out of 11 new starters mm. coming into this year. And Jason Globig, one of those three returners, had missed most of the season. He came back strong with a hat trick on their senior night. It was only his third game, second full game that he was able to play this season. So it was good to see him out there and playing well. I think that what he adds for them is just another problem for opposing defenses. Whether he's playing on that wing back position or on the forward wing, he's really able to put a lot of pressure on the defense, has a ton of speed, is really good on ball, either as a passer or a scorer. We saw, uh, obviously, the scoring side of that on display last week. So I think that that's a big add for them. But that's a team that has played with a ton of confidence given how little starting experience they had uh, coming in. And I think that you know they're really well set up. There were some you know questions last week obviously they get the 3-1 win over Crystal River it's a game that they should have won by a little bit more frankly but uh, Michael Florian had a little bit of a tough go missed some easy shots not like him at all usually a very very competent scorer and he missed some chances you could see some frustration but I think that he'll be back in form a little bit of uh, a sidebar on him he actually tried out for the Villages SC's USL2 side this summer as a high school junior. Yeah. And he looked like the best player on the pitch <laughs> for a solid. He was out there at uh, as a left wing, I believe, for a solid 20 to 25 minutes, and he had two goals and an assist uh, against guys that are uh, high school graduates, college players, you know, guys who have aspirations of playing professional soccer. And uh, he went out there because he wants to focus a little bit more on soccer two nights after this really disappointing performance by his own standards. And I talked to him afterwards, and he said he was feeling feeling really confident after that going up against some older guys more experienced guys and being able to score and control pace and control the game the way that he was and really feel comfortable out there said that he felt really good coming off of that so I think that he'll be able to shake that senior night game and when they get into the district semifinals on Monday night of next week I think we'll see him back at uh, you know usual production Definitely a way, good way to take confidence into the postseason. Uh, that will take care of a kind of a rapid fire session, but uh, a lot of information. Thanks, Cody and Drew, for uh, all of that on the basketball and soccer side. We're going to take a little bit of a break, and when we come back to the Daily Sun Sports podcast, we will talk some golf. Brooke Henderson off to a strong start as the LPGA begins, and there may be one hotter golfer on the planet. That's John Rahm right after this. With 24 first-place decorations in the 2019 Florida Press Club Awards, the Village's Daily Sun brings first-class journalism to the nation's fastest-growing community every day. Stay informed with the nation's fastest-growing newspaper. Subscribe to the Daily Sun by calling 352-753-1119. Time for our usual golf chat. Drew Shaltry and Jeff Shane still in the studio with you. And Jeff, we're going to start with where you were this past weekend. You were at the LPGA Tournament of Champions. You got to see a great performance from Brooke Henderson, who absolutely, I don't want to say cruised through this tournament, but played one of the most solid four days of golf that we've seen on the LPGA in a while. Jeff, just walk us through Brooke Henderson's huge victory out there. It was kind of a surprise, even a little bit to her. Maybe not that she won, but it came so easily 
because it was a weird off season for her. She finished last season with some back issues. So as soon as the last putt dropped, she took two weeks off, didn't touch a club. And a lot of players do that. But then in the comeback process, you can't exactly go back to a full swing. So she really didn't start full swinging until after New Year's. She had her wisdom teeth taken out. Hey, if you're going to take time out, why not just get it all done, right? So, and then she signed a new equipment deal with TaylorMade, and some of those work out really well. And I remember when Phil Mickelson first went to Callaway, it was kind of a disaster, especially doing it right before the Ryder Cup. I remember Justin Rose (laughs) having problems with uh, Honma when he signed that. So you just never quite know, even if you've tested it as much as you can. But she shoots a five under par 67 first day, has the first day lead and just kind of built on it from there. She never really had any issues where she had a run of bogeys or or let somebody else in. After she got the three-shot lead at the midway point, it was, I don't want to say on cruise control, because especially on Sunday, the wind came up and you had to really be sure of what you were hitting, but she just did not look out of sorts at all for the entire week. Well, take us inside the ropes a little bit. How much did you kind of get to follow her? How much did you see of her process? And could you get kind of a sense of the sort of confidence that she's playing with? Obviously, she's won three events now in her last dozen outings, so she's got to be playing with some. But was that apparent from where you were out there on the course? I think it was after day one, and I even asked her about this. Obviously, when you win by four and everything that could have gone wrong didn't, your confidence is sky high on Sunday. But at the end, I said, what was your confidence like on Thursday? And and, and she said, it's always kind of there in the back of your mind. How is this going to go? But I think that first round 67 put her at ease. And even though you you, you can't let up and you, you can't really uh, get too, too confident, I, I think that really freed her up to say, let's go make some birdies. And you, you do have to make birdies at this tournament. It is set up on the easier side because you've got to get all of these celebrities around uh, in a uh, timely fashion. So uh, you know you got to get to double digits under par. And she just looked really free and easy the entire rest of the way. Well, it's definitely good to see from her. Who else did you enjoy watching out there this weekend? What were some of the sights and sounds from, from this tournament? I, I, from a player standpoint, I was really impressed with Charlie Hull, who wound up tying for second uh, along with Sweden's Maya Stark. Charlie, uh, everybody starts off the new year with a little bit of question mark, but the interesting thing about Charlie is she has no U.S. base. She still lives in England. She was doing all of her practice in the cold, off hard ground, fuzzy greens, so when she teed it up here, and I'll, I will say she did spend one week practicing in warm weather in Morocco, of all places. That's quite the commute. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, so she went there for a week before going to Orlando, but then she came out of the gate and, and I think really played well. I think she even surprised herself. So that was that was the one that, that really kind of stuck out to me. And the, the one thing about this event is 
we always kind of call it, it's the pebble beach of the LPGA and you've got the, all the pros and you got the celebrities, although they don't play in a, in a team format like pebble beach does. They do mix and match as the week goes on. And I think there's a certain advantage to that, but it's just, it's the atmosphere. It's very loose. I think that helps players. One thing you do have to get used to is the thumping bass that comes down 18 the entire day. It starts at 1030 or whatever in the morning, and we can hear it from the media tent. And I'm sure that some of those post-round interviews have thumping bass in the background as well. So it's a different vibe, I think, for golfers. It, it is cool. You kind of have to get used to that background noise, but uh, certainly the, the celebrity factor... Um, I think is just a really good groove. I and mean, you, we've seen guys like John Smoltz and Marty Fish and those really good golfers, Derek Lowe last year. But even if you go to the other side, the guys that start on 10 that are finishing middle of the pack or lower side of the pack, you got to watch Marcus Allen play golf. And Mark, Marcus Allen, I caught him on Sunday. He was like, he was not having a good day. He says, it's like I've never played before, <laughs> which I've said on many, many occasions. So we can all relate to that. Right, yeah. Um, you know, Victor Cruz was out there, you know, kind of bringing up the back of the pack. And so um, even if you aren't necessarily familiar with the LPGA names, you have a tendency to gravitate to – Whoever your favorite athlete is from your favorite sport, whether it's Marcus Allen, whether it's Derek Lowe or John Smoltz or Tom Glovin or Larry Fitzgerald. And then you get to see some good LPGA players that maybe their name will stick in your head as you follow the rest of the year. Yeah, it's a fun event. It's, you know, just between the celebrity aspect, the um, the the kickoff that they have, the venue, it's, it's really one of the better events of the year. It's a great start to the season for the LPGA in my mind. Uh, unfortunately, it's the last time we're going to see the LPGA for a few weeks as they get ready for their Asian That's swing. That's the downside. And yeah, it's such a bummer. You get this nice high right at the beginning, and then they're like, okay, we're taking a month it, off. It, 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 <laughs> and it wasn't meant to be that way. Last year, they had a three-event start in Florida. It went from this event to Boca Raton to Fort Myers, and it was a nice Florida swing. But in the corporate world of golf, things change. The corporate sponsor for the Boca event took their corporate sponsorship and put it with the event at the end of the year at Pelican Golf Club, the, the next to last event yeah. before the CME championship. So because of that, there was nobody that stepped into the sponsorship. That, that event went away. The Fort Myers event was a one-off, kind of figured it might be a one-off from the beginning. So now all of a sudden this is on... A, com a complete scheduling island. We've had a six-week off-season, give or take. Now, some of the people like Nellie Corda and Lexi Thompson played that shark shootout uh, in Naples, so that broke it up a little bit. But for most of them, it's six weeks of off-season. You play one event, and a lot of them chose not to, just took the longer off-season. But now you have the mini off-season where you've got four weeks to – Figure out how to fine-tune what you just learned in Orlando. So it's a really, it's an unfortunate situation. Hopefully that will improve in coming years. Yeah, what I'm hearing is that there's an opening to bring an LPGA event to the Villages. I'm hearing that. Logistically, this, <laughs> I, I'm just thinking of this right now, but it makes sense. If they're going to be in Orlando for this past weekend... If all they have to do is go 45 minutes up the road and come play at, I don't know, Nancy Lopez Legacy would be a natural fit, it would seem, or one of the other championship clubs in the cor uh, courses in the villages. 
We can always wish. I think that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I think that somebody needs to get on the phone about a sponsorship. And, uh, and we had Ocala on the schedule not so long yeah, ago Yeah, either. we had the uh, up at Golden. Yeah, that was a fun event. I covered a little bit of that. Yeah. It was the same weekend as Bay Hill. Now that I'm thinking about this, where's uh, you know, Parity Financial or somebody? Get a, <laughs> an LPGA We're sponsorship. calling you out, yes. <laughs> um, Sammy Joe's Pizza, uh, the Sammy Joe's Pizza Villages Classic. You know, you can, you can have multiple sponsors. You can, you can have a title sponsor and then a presented by and, you know, all of those type of issues. There but, we go. Uh, DZ Block Concrete, somebody. Let's hope. So, moving over to the men's side, as hot as Brooke Henderson has been, John Rahm has been uh, on fire. He's yes. won four of his last six. Uh, he kind of went bully ball a little bit on a rookie this past weekend to get his fourth win in that last half dozen appearances. He's still not number one in the world, but uh, I, figure. I, it feels like it's only a matter of time, though, at this point. John Rahm is coming for wins this season. And it was a performance where because John Rahm just kind of kept hanging around you never want to go into that tiger territory, but I'm sure Davis Thompson was sitting there on Friday and Saturday looking over his shoulder and saying, John Rahm is two shots behind me or one shot behind me. I can't let up. And to his credit, he really didn't. He went 70 holes toe to toe with John Rahm, but the pressure does build up after a while. And you're dealing with a U.S. Open champion who is ranked number three officially, but I think in the back of our heads right now is number one, certainly the hottest golfer on the planet. And you tend to put a little pressure on yourself. It wasn't that Davis Thompson bogeyed to give John, John Rom the lead. He made a par, but again, in that tournament out in the desert with mild temperatures, often no wind, uh, you got to go really, really low there. And Davis Thompson did. Davis Thompson was two shots off the 72-hole scoring record for this tournament. Unfortunately, John Rahm was one shot off the 72-hole scoring record for the American Express. Yeah, and he took the lead on that 16th hole, which was a really, really masterful birdie. It was just so confident. Every stroke was exactly what John Rahm wanted. And what it reminded me of was uh, like a, a veteran basketball player, like a Cleveland era LeBron James. If he was going up against a young player who got hot and you know maybe hit a couple shots against him, and they you know it comes down to the fourth quarter, and he goes, "All right, rookie, watch this. Like yeah. this is this is your you missed your drive. I'm going to bury you with a birdie right here. It's like it doesn't matter if you come back and save par. I've done I've done the damage, and you're not catching me now. Like you left me this opening. It was this big. It was very Don't small. Much. It's just a par, but that's all I need." to get ahead of you and that's it now I'm on your neck and it's over I mean John Rahm it's I feel like he does have that killer instinct I feel like he weird for a golfer like he almost plays angry I think that he plays with a chip on his shoulder he certainly plays with emotion yes and he's been he's been kind of public about you know feeling disrespected at, at you know events where he doesn't get mentioned as one of the best in the world he feels like he gets overlooked whether he's right about this or not but gets overlooked for Rory McIlroy and Scotty Scheffler and Justin Thomas and some of these other guys who are not necessarily better than him, maybe don't have all that much more success than him, but for whatever reason seem to... In the to, cycles of golf, yes. it's up and down. Who's the hot guy yeah, at the time? Yeah, and they seem to overshadow him at different points, and he feels like he should have been in this conversation constantly as the best golfer in the world. So he kind of lets that emotion out on the golf course, and I think that he you know, savors it a little bit when he gets a chance to do something like he did on Sunday, where he can, again, take that small opening 
and turn it into a victory and, and just kind of then stand up there at the not the literal podium, but stand there at the end and with another win and remind everyone that he is one of the best in the world. And this really, I think, is his time of year, too. He went to college at Arizona State. He still lives in Scottsdale. He plays a lot in the desert, obviously. He plays a lot in California. So the West Coast Swing, I think, really is a place where John Rahm can pluck off a number of early season wins as he did this past week. And then, and we'll just foreshadow this. This coming week, he goes to Torrey Pines, where he just so happened to win that U.S. Open. LIV Golf is making a return soon. If you don't know how to find the CW on your cable package, you will have a chance to see them in person a little bit this year, potentially. They will be in Orlando for the first time. Jeff, what's coming up that's big on the LIV calendar? The the schedule hasn't officially been announced, but it has been all over various media outlets. And one of the uh, interesting additions, they went from eight events last year to a 14 event schedule this year. And one of the additions is coming to Central Florida. Uh, LIV Golf Orlando will be played at Orange County uh, National uh, the week before the Masters, which I think is a great scheduling move because you put you put those guys that are playing the Masters in the southeastern United States to be competitive and it will be interesting to to see how all of that shakes out, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping that I'll have a chance to get out there at least for a couple of rounds and kind of catch what the vibe is with LIV golf. Uh, but uh, their season still about a month off starting in Mexico. Uh, and there, there will be uh, also another stop in Florida toward the end at Trump Doral. It was their finale last year. Now the finale is going to be in Saudi Arabia, but the next to last event will be at Trump. And then what do we have coming up this week on the golf calendar? Well, we did mention the Farmers Insurance Open where John Rahm looks to go three for three in 2023. Who's going to get in his way? Who who knows? But uh, as I said, that's where he won the U.S. Open a couple of years ago. Interesting stat. John Rahm would be, he's looking to be the 19th player in the last 25 years, 26 years to win three in a row. Now, that doesn't sound like much. 18 guys have already done it. Well, not 18 guys. It's happened 18 times before, but 14 of those belong to Tiger Woods. Yeah, I had a feeling that was coming. (laughs) (laughs) So... uh, like the we, caveat to every insane yeah. golf stat that exists. <laughs> Absolutely. So really, John Rahm is looking to become the fifth guy since 1997 to win three in a row. And like I say, who's going to who's gonna knock him off? I mean, there are some good names in this in this field. Xander Schauffele, Will Zalatoris, Colin Morikawa is going to come back, you know, try to rebuild after that collapse uh, that he had down the stretch, Justin Thomas, Tony Finau. So that's a, that is going to be, as it always is, a really strong event. And then let's go overseas for a minute. The Dubai Desert Classic is also this week. That is the original Middle Eastern event that started the whole boom of golf in that part of the country. Uh, Victor Perez from France, he won last week at Abu Dhabi. He'll be looking for the double, but he's going to have to get past world number one, Rory McIlroy, who has an insane record. Even though he's only won twice in Dubai, he's a constant top five, top 10 machine there. Also, Lee Westwood, Francesco Molinari, Tommy Fleetwood, Henrik Stenson, 
an LIV golfer playing on the DP World Tour. And Patrick Reed's going to be over there, too. No, it should be fun. Good weekend for golf. Again, a little bit disappointed that we don't have an LPGA event this weekend as well. But uh, certainly the farmer's insurance should satisfy uh, folks' need for some uh, some entertaining head-to-heads. And that is a Wednesday through Saturday event as the PGA Tour decides we're not going to counter-program the NFC and AFC Championship. Well, that's a perfect segue you just provided into our next segment. Ryan Weiss and JT Wilcox are going to join me just a moment as we talk about the upcoming AFC and NFC Championship games as well as the divisional games from this past weekend. Jeff, thanks for being here. We'll take a quick break and we'll be right back right after this. From high school heroes to softball to the latest on the Villages Fairways, the Daily Sun brings you the best in local sports. Stay informed with the nation's fastest growing newspaper in the nation's fastest growing community. Subscribe to the Villages Daily Sun by calling 352-753-1119. Wrapping up today, talking about the NFL's divisional rounds as well as the upcoming conference championship games. JT Wilcox and Ryan Weiss have joined me in the studio. JT, welcome back for last week. Ryan, welcome back from, I don't know, what's it been, three months since we last had been you on while, here? Yeah. yeah, it's been a little bit, but we're happy to have you back here in studio. Uh, fun week of football, a couple of close games, a couple of not-so-close games, but uh, we're just going to go through these games over the course of the weekend and want to start with the last Florida team that was alive. That was the Jacksonville Jaguars, and if we'd said in September they were going to be the last team playing this season, it might have come as a surprise, but I did go back and listen, JT, to the podcast that we did after week one. I made a point of saying – if the AFC South is bad, the Jaguars could be hanging around for a divisional spot at the end. I did not think that they would cover against the Chiefs in the divisional round at that point, but I've really, really been impressed with what the Jaguars were able to do down the stretch this season, and I feel like if you're a fan of Jacksonville, you have to be optimistic going into next year. Absolutely. I mean, they came into that game with house money. They, yeah. they knew whatever they did, anything positive that they did was going to be something to build on because – Kansas City, at when they're whole, and, and they were made not whole after what happened against Jacksonville, but Kansas City, when they're whole, is just a totally different, on a different level than Jacksonville is. But credit to them, credit to the job that Doug Peterson did this season. Uh, really like what I saw from uh, Trevor Lawrence, especially after the game, the way yes. he got into the leadership he showed. Uh, that should make, like you said, Jacksonville fans should be very optimistic for things that should be coming down the pike uh, for with that ball club. So... Like you said, to cover, it's all you really can ask for. They didn't get blown out unlike some people this weekend. Yeah, they managed to they managed to hang in. And for me, I'm just kind of thinking about what like what's already in-house. Like they've got the number one pick from last year's draft in Trayvon Walker, who you expect will get better. And then I'd completely forgotten about this until just the other day. Calvin Ridley's also going to be on that team. He's serving that suspension for gambling. You're adding another receiver to that already without making another trade, without using another draft pick. Like he's already in-house. Uh, and that's a guy who was really, really productive for Atlanta. And I feel like that they're already poised to to make a leap if he can click with Trevor Lawrence. Yeah, the Jaguars have to feel great going into next year. The one thing I will say, I'm not much of a moral victories guy. This one is a moral victory, you can kind of say. But at the same time, Patrick Mahomes has a severe high ankle sprain. And you guys can't, they can't take advantage of it. You never know how long the window is going to be open. I think Brady and Belichick has kind of warped all our minds, thinking, oh, you'll be back next year. Uh, I thought the Eagles, when they won in 17, with once would be a dynasty. That all fell apart so fast. It's one of those things where you thought Mike Caldwell, defense coordinator, would blitz a little more and test Mahomes' uh, mobility. But it's a frustrating loss. But like we said, the overarching thing is they they look great. They're headed into next year. They have a great coach. The quarterback looks like they're going to they're gonna be in a good spot. 
And I, I, see, I get what you're saying there, Ryan, but I just feel like I, it just, I don't think it was just ever really in the cars because they let Chad Henney come in and drive 90, almost 90 yeah. yards on him. So yeah. I just don't think it was truly. Then once you give up a 99-yard touchdown to Henney, it's a backbreaker. They had that drop picked uh, on that drive. It's one of those things where I, if I was a Jaguars fan, I would look, be looking back so much thinking about every single play in that game. But, but like I said, if you're a Jaguars fan, you should be very optimistic heading into next year. Yeah, that was the one thing. It was the one time that I felt like they maybe mismanaged the game. They didn't adjust their game plan at that particular moment for Chad Henney to come in because that's a, a point where you should have said, okay, we're going to go all out on defense and we're also going to try to get a quick score here. I think that would have been big. If you could take that you know, three to four minutes, I think that they had a chance to – make that a more competitive game than it ended up being and didn't take advantage of the moment. But I thought otherwise, you know, really managed the game well, had a chance. I thought what they did at the end was smart where they, you know, took the shot of the end zone and then kicked the field goal with like 40 seconds left or whatever it was to give themselves a chance if they recover the onside kick. So, I mean, there's a lot to like about that team. Again, I think that the the coaching situation there is a, a very good one. With Doug Peterson, who obviously had success in Philadelphia, I think that you know Trevor Lawrence has to to feel good about his offense coming back next year and, and the improvement that he showed just from last year to this year uh, was such a, a massive difference that uh, I think there has to be a lot of optimism and that you can't really be too upset with the result playing out the way that it did. I'd say that everything they did this year exceeded expectations from winning the division just to getting to that point and then to hang in with, you know, one of the best offensive teams we've ever seen, obviously in a little bit of a down day for them with the Mahomes injury during the game. But all in all, great season for Jacksonville. The Chiefs, uh, we'll talk about in a little bit. We're going to move on to the second game of that evening. And Ryan, now's your chance to, to go ahead and brag about your freaking Eagles and how good they are. And yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, what can you say? The Eagles looked great. Everyone was talking about, oh, are they coming in slow? Have they have they lost a step? I think everyone was too focused on those last couple of games with Gardner Minshew. Minshew looked horrible against the Saints. He's kind of the reason they lost that game. And then that last game against the Giants, Giants had all their stars out. The game wasn't as close as it looked. The Eagles kicked a lot of field goals. A big part of the Eagles' red zone offense is Jalen Hurts running. They didn't want to have him run that last game of the, week, the, uh, the last game of the year. So I understand the people people who have, were maybe a little pessimistic about the Eagles, but they shouldn't have been that much. The people who were gassing up the Giants, thinking that the Vikings defense was 27th in DVOA this year. The Vikings defense was horrible. Anyone could have looked like that against uh, – if you say – so-and-so quarterback had his best career game against a 27th ranked defense you'd be like okay cool whatever that happens all the time still the Giants to make it that far it's 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 a great season for them to win to win nine games make the playoffs it's they have to be happy going into next year Brian Dayball is a very good coach uh they need a lot of talent that was the biggest part that he was just outclassed him as yeah. far as talent of the ball they got, got to find a receiver they have Wandell Robinson and Sterling Shepard coming back from injury next year uh, the defense has more talent than you think. The linebackers are what killed them. The Eagles just attacked Jalen Smith and Jared Davis. But the Giants have reason to be optimistic, even though they got absolutely demolished by their division rival who owns them for the past 15 years. <laughs> fly, Eagles, fly. No, but Drew, I also like to take a victory lap here because I believe I was the one that said Daniel Jones would show himself to be Mitch Trubisky. He and looked I think- just like Josh Allen this weekend. <laughs> I believe that was your guy, right? right. Well, yeah, okay. So I'm going to take a victory lap 
on Daniel Jones, and then I'm just going to slightly excuse myself from the uh, studio when we get to the part about Josh Allen. But no, Daniel Jones, like I said, I, I always felt like he just really wasn't it to kind of piggyback off of what Ryan said. Daniel Jones just wasn't it. A broken clock is right twice a day. That was just what we saw that, that weeks before was just that one time that was right, and now he went back to being a broken clock. So was never really optimistic about the Giants in terms with him at quarterback. Uh, they can get a talent infusion all around, but especially at the quarterback position, I think they'll be in a better position. I know forward. it's big money. It's like $40 million or something, but you have to tag Jones. You yeah. can't you can't give him a long-term contract. He just hasn't shown it yet. If he, if he plays like he did again with Dayball and it takes another step, then go ahead and give him another $30 million, $35 million a year contract. But even though it's a $40 million chunk of the cap, you got to – tag him because you can't risk it just like baker mayfield last year right they all come crashing down yeah that's where i am with with daniel jones as well is you know the upside is there we saw over the last about six weeks of the season what he's capable of with brian dayball as the head coach and again he's working with very little talent not the best offensive line a bargain bin receiving core so i think that there's there is a world where everything is you know works and and he works in a system run by Brian Dayball, which we've obviously seen him be successful as an offensive coordinator as well. So I feel a little bit the same way about the Giants that I did about Jacksonville, which is they were playing a little bit with house money there. Coming into this season, for them to even have a winning record, I think was exceeding expectations. To get a wild card berth, to win a round in the playoffs and go to this game, you know, obviously you would have liked to perform better against a rival in a playoff game than they did, but at that point I don't feel like they were really – disappointing anyone for the most part. I think that getting there is better than any Giants fan could have expected coming into the year. So I, again, I'd feel optimistic about the Giants. If I was a New York fan, I think that, you know, the needs are pretty obvious. You have a, a, a blueprint here, what Ryan just laid out, you know, you franchise tag Jones, you don't have to commit to him long-term just yet. You can draft and add some linebackers in free agency, the wide receiver. And I think there'll be a couple other names on the market from teams that, are going to maybe start rebuilds or move on from quarterbacks and stuff like that. There's going to be some names out there that will be available. And I've, we've seen in recent years that some of these guys go for cheaper than we expect when it comes to you know draft capital for acquiring players from other teams, depending on situations. So I think that there's a pretty clear path for the Giants to get better, and I think that next year will kind of be the proving point for them to show that they are actually on a sustainable build up. Uh, and that this wasn't just sort of a fluky, oh, we won two or three games more than we were capable of. Right, and we also saw the, come a bit of a resurgence from Saquon Barkley. Yeah. Because there was talk at one point of saying, hey, should we ship this guy out, see what we can get out of him, uh, now to back where he's being that featured uh, franchise cornerstone running back that can be out there all three downs, all four downs if necessary. So I think that was probably the biggest reason for their resurgence. I think is because we got a healthy and productive Saquon Barkley performance, which he helped in my fantasy football team too. So happy for that. Moving on to Sunday's games, we had, well, if you're JT, one of the most surprising results of the weekend in the, the Bengals just absolutely handling the Bills. And I don't know why it's the most confident I've ever been in a prediction about a game that was supposed to be close, which is that the Bengals would win. I, I mean, I the fact that the Bills were favored by five and a half points going into that game was absurd to was me. Was it five and a half? It was five wow. and a half was the line on Sunday. I thought it was a major coin flip game. I could see it going either way. I really thought Josh Allen would find a way to win the game. 
I think the Bills not having any pass rush and Vaughn Miller is what hurt them the most. But uh, I'll give the floor to you to grill JT about him. <laughs> I mean, Josh Allen, first of all, got sacked more times than Joe Burrow, who was missing three of his starting offensive linemen. But I, I think that the first point that I want to make is that Joe Burrow is that guy. Mahomes is the best quarterback in the NFL, but to me, Joe Burrow is number two. And purely on a talent standpoint, Allen is up there. Obviously, he can do all the things physically that you want from your quarterback. But when it comes to finding a way to win, finding receivers, making the smart plays, Joe Burrow's pocket manipulation is absolutely elite level. What he was able to do in Sunday's game, taking one sack for two yards with a porous offensive line, and yes, the Bills' pass rush was lacking and and not as effective as you would have liked it to be, especially against a banged-up offensive line, but he has been so good all season at controlling the pocket, manipulating, stepping up, moving through, doing the things that you need to be able to do if you're not a quarterback who's a great scrambler who can get outside the pockets and create like Mahomes does. Joe Burrow's absolutely elite at it, and since that first month of the season has had such good control of the ball, isn't turning it over, and that Bengals offense, obviously, there's so much talent at the skill positions, you really can't afford not to force Burrow into mistakes, and he's just gotten so good at not making them. But I I think that part of the reason that I was so confident, this from a talent standpoint, Cincinnati's roster is almost as good as anyone in the NFL. I think that Of the teams that are left, they have the second most talented top-to-bottom roster. Obviously, the offensive line is the the major point of concern for them, but I don't think that they should necessarily be afraid of Kansas City. They've beat them three times in the last calendar year. Obviously, that doesn't mean everything, but they obviously have a formula for at least competing with the Chiefs, and I don't think that they're going to be afraid to go into Arrowhead this week. But I, I think on the other side, this was a massive disappointment for the Bills. This was supposed to be the year. They've been building towards this building, building, building. We heard all before the season about how Josh Allen was going to be the best quarterback in the NFL and you know, forget everybody else and all this stuff. And uh, Josh Allen had one of the worst quarterback games of the weekend. I mean, he was, if at all better, barely better than Daniel Jones and didn't throw a touchdown in a winner-go-home game at home. That's as bad as it gets, honestly. I don't think that we can continue having a conversation about who's the better quarterback between him and Mahomes if he can't at least give his team a chance to win in that game. I don't think that's ever been a conversation, though. I I, oh, anyone, no, no, I'm with you. Yeah. I'm just saying we spent a lot of this year, leading up to this year and a lot of this season, talking about Josh Allen as maybe better than Mahomes. And I was never on board with that conversation, but it has been a conversation. Okay, so I'll, I'll uh, enter the chat here at this point and say – I think we get enamored with a guy like Josh Allen because of all the physical tools. Yeah. He looks pretty back there standing in the pocket. He's 6'5", he's 230, he can run it, he can sling it effortlessly down the field. But Buffalo just, I think, and I'm going to play this card. I didn't want to have to play this card, but I'm going to have to pull it out. The emotional toll that has been taken on this team, everything that has gone transpired and gone on, over the past month or so, has just we saw it all come to a head uh, this past weekend, uh, and we know we saw Demar Hamlin there, and I sure I'm sure provided did, a did joke. Did we see Demar Hamlin? All we ever saw was the snow. <laughs> <laughs> we saw Demar Hamlin there at the stadium. He's been visiting with the, with the team, and I'm sure that provided some sort of emotional jolt. But after a while, that high you're going to crash back down, and I think we saw that and them crash back down. We saw it probably take a toll on them just physically, mentally. Uh, there was, they were just drained. They did not look like the same Buffalo Bills team that we saw earlier in this season. 
See, I think for me, there's two things to this. One, if there was another team that was also going to be affected by that, it's Cincinnati. So I think that because they were obviously, you know, very shaken in that moment too. You saw like the players talked that night about we were never going to go back out and play. Like I think that obviously they weren't as close to DeMar as the Bills are with him being their teammate. But I think that it was an emotional thing to happen to them as well. That said, the Bills also had DeMar Hamlin in the building all week. I think the idea was to get that emotional high out of the way so that there wouldn't be that spike and then a big letdown from an emotional perspective. And they still came out so flat in that game. There was just no spark whatsoever. I mean, it looked like they were in a walkthrough. There was no sense of urgency, it didn't seem. There was no feel. There was nothing to give you confidence that the Bills were going to make that a competitive game. Right, and credit Cincinnati because they took the fight. Oh, they, they took the yeah, fight yeah, to yeah. Buffalo. And you could see that they, they carried that chip. And to your point, and to credit to you saying that last week, that they would come in there with that chip on their shoulder and saying, hey, when we started that game, we were up and we were coming in there to take the fight to you then, we're going to finish what we yeah. started. So, again, credit to them for that. But I just think that emotional toll, I think let's not discredit that. That's all I'm saying. That like Let's not discredit all the things that they've gone through as a franchise and man for man to see someone go through what DeMar Hamlin went through and how, you know, how thank God he's recovering for it from it now. But again, just that emotional toll, I think really came to a head for Buffalo. Moving on to the last game from this past weekend, Ryan gets to take another victory lap. <laughs> I mean, really Ryan went like three and zero this weekend uh, from a football fan perspective as the Dallas Cowboys once again bowed out of the playoffs in embarrassing fashion, which I think for the majority of our lifetimes has really been the case. They go down at San Francisco in, you know, one of the worst performances of the playoffs. And it was a classic letdown after a big performance against the bad Buccaneers the week before go out, faced a good team and just got absolutely eviscerated. Ryan, the floor is yours. So as a Philadelphia sports fan, I have seen enough bad things happen to the Eagles where uh, I enjoy schadenfreude. So anytime the Dallas Cowboys lose, it feels like a win for me. Uh, the Cowboys have won five playoff games since I've been born. This is no different. Dak Prescott played horribly. He had two interceptions that probably shown a should have thrown the game ending pick six to Dre Greenlaw at the very end of the game. The only guys who showed up for the Cowboys were CeeDee Lamb and Micah Parsons, who always shows up. I, as a Penn State fan, I hate that he's on the Cowboys, but we have to deal with what we have to deal with. It's just so fun to always watch them lose. They never haven't been to the NFC Championship game in the past 12 times they've reached the playoffs. That is the longest streak in the NFL for a team to not reach the conference championship game. The Eagles have been there seven times since 2001, so... To get off the Cowboys, 49ers are a great team. The Cowboys were the third best team in the NFC this year. While it may have not been the most highly played contest, it was still a good game. Cowboys had a shot there at the one at the end. That last play rivals the Jacoby Myers uh, lateral on a tie game as the funniest <laughs> way to end the game I've ever seen. Yeah, it was it was really bad. Yes, Micah Parsons in a starred helmet is your cross to bear. But uh, JT, I want to know, are you on the side of the Dak Prescott argument that says they should move on? Or do you think that there's a successful Super Bowl contending future for the Cowboys with Dak Prescott at quarterback? See, Dak Prescott is meh. Well, yeah. I consider meh. He's, he's he's good enough, not good enough to get to to win, but not bad enough to you say, all right, let's tear this thing down and rebuild. He keeps you right there middling, and I think we've seen enough to say, you know what, we either have to tear this thing down, bring in somebody different, let that go on, and let's just try to see what we can get with a young guy, or you go and take a swing for an Aaron Rodgers who seems to be maybe available this coming off season. 
Maybe you can convince Tom Brady to come out to Texas in the offseason and try to take a swing that way. But I think as long as they have Dak Prescott, they're going to be what they've been, which is a team that eh, probably win maybe 10 games, maybe 11 games with the right schedule, some schedule luck. But they get to to the playoffs and then they become the Cowboys again. So because then Dak Prescott will Dak Prescott. He's essentially another version. He's in that club with Daniel Jones, Mitch Trubisky, and Kirk Cousins. Guys that are this it's not a good club to be a part of. <laughs> oh. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. In fairness to those other guys, those three are a step above Mitch Trubisky because at least in a regular season, well, game, every, every, they can perform to a league average. Every standard. room needs a floor. So I mean <laughs> Mitch yeah, Trubisky. But you gave that room a basement. Like, <laughs> okay, but so Mitch Trubisky's the floor. So but every, yeah, so I mean if but that's still a bad group to be a part of and I it's put him in there. So I I think I think they have to take a shot because they do have some young talent. You saw what CeeDee Lamb was able to do. Before Pollard got hurt, you know, he was doing well. I think Ezekiel Elliott is time to move on from him because, again, another one of those kind of middling guys that maybe we've seen his peak, and now he's basically washed. So it's time to move on there. Uh, so they do have some young pieces. I think Micah Parsons is definitely one of the best defensive players, maybe just one of the best football players in the NFL. So you can build around there. So I say take a swing and go after one of these veterans that might be on the table come the offseason. Yeah, I think the interesting thing to your point about Dak Prescott is I kind of feel the same way about Mike McCarthy, where after a kind of a disappointment like this, the second year in a row where they you know maybe should have done a little bit better, you think about either the coach or the quarterback, you're probably going to move on from one because both of them are kind of an issue. But it, you can't do both because they've been too successful to like clean house. You know, like it's it's not tear it all down mode, but it's like neither of these guys feels like the guy that's going to get you there on their own. You know, Mike McCarthy's not a coach that you think, oh yeah, if you just give him some pieces, he can coach a championship team. No, he needs that. Hall, he needed a Hall of Fame quarterback to do it before. And then Dak Prescott is that you need everything right around him and you need a, a coach like a, a Sean Payton or a Kyle Shanahan or somebody to to make this really click and, and go nuts and and that could get you there. And so you're just kind of have these two guys that are maybe slightly above average and together just again are just slightly above average and so you're just going to be, you know, wiping out in these wild card and divisional rounds till the end of time as long as they're in place it feels like. I'll disagree on the Dak thing. I think Dak's like in that nine to ten quarterback range, and when he's on, he can be near near that six five range. Problem is with Dak is that his floor is like around the twenty. He's and he's not consistent enough. When he's on, he's on. I think McCarthy is the bigger problem there. Uh, you saw how mismanaged those Packers were at the end of his tenure yeah. there, and I don't think they got any better. Moving on to Rodgers or Brady is. I think a lateral move at best at this point. Uh, I can't. I'm shocked. I'm defending Dak Prescott, but I I do think it's more of a coaching thing than it is a quarterback thing. I call shenanigans. He's an Eagles fan. He wants to see Dallas be bad. <laughs> that's where that's where that is coming I from. Have said, I call shenanigans. I have said if I could own any NFL team, it would be the Cowboys to run them into the ground. I think that uh, their current ownership's done a pretty pretty solid but, job. Yeah, they beat you to so, the punch on that one. Honest, unbiased opinion is I don't think Dak is the problem there. I don't think he's the problem, but again, I don't think you can have both of those guys and expect any kind of serious success. I will say, as far as which one to move on from this offseason, it kind of makes sense to pick McCarthy because if you can get in on the Sean Payton sweepstakes, I have to imagine he'd be open to going to Dallas with all the connections there. 
Uh, and that's not a bad situation for him from a football standpoint. We talked about last week, you know, where does Sean Payton want to go? What's the best place for him to end, end up? Um, you know, I still say L.A., but it looks like they're going to stick with Brandon Staley after they, you know, scapegoated the QB coach and the offensive coordinator. But I wouldn't say scapegoat. Joe Lombardi was a problem with it, but that's a different point. Yeah, it's not great. But I think that Sean Payton makes a big difference for this team. If you could get him in there, I think that he's the sort of mind who can take what Dak Prescott does, take the weapons that they have there in Dallas, and immediately take them a step up. I don't think that teams really feared the Cowboys this year. I think that, you know, there were elements that you had to worry about. Like you have to you have to address how to defend C D Lamb. You have to contend with Micah Parsons on the defense but I don't think that going into a game against the Cowboys teams were necessarily like at a loss for what to do obviously they had a good amount of success in the regular season but they were not a team that at any point I looked at and said that could really be a Super Bowl contender I I think that um, they just they need something to get them over that hump and I think personnel wise they seem solid but either the quarterback has to take a step forward or they need to get a coach in there who can elevate them with a scheme. Anyway, moving on to the games this weekend, I'm going to start with the NFC because we didn't really talk about the 49ers right there. I mentioned earlier that I think the Bengals are the second most talented top-to-bottom roster in the NFL. I think the 49ers are number one. A solid defense, a lot of playmakers on that defense, but on offense, and especially when you consider that Kyle Shanahan is in control of this, I talked last week about just how impressed I was with his scheme and how he deploys all of these weapons, and that has not changed after this past week, I think that um, you know that that group is as good as any in the NFL, barring the quarterback, who may actually be decent. It's so hard to tell, but I, I think that this is going to be a really fun matchup because the Eagles are right there in that conversation, though, with the most talented rosters. And I I think that we're going to get two really good games, and this one uh, from a one to one matchup on each side of the ball is going to be the most interesting. Kyle Shanahan as a play caller versus Jonathan Gannon as the Eagles defensive coordinator, I think is the biggest mismatch in the NFL. <laughs> Shanahan is so good, as like Drew said, of getting Debo and Kittle and Ayuk and all those guys open. They're just running, and just no one's around him in five yards. And Gannon, the defense is so vanilla and simplistic. They run three three formations. They they have three base pack three packages and. You can kind of tell what they're going to run when they're in in a five down front when they're in a nickel. It, it, they're very they're very easy to find out. Hold on, now, let me get Kyle on the phone and put him on speaker while you so quick. No, I will I will say Gannon has done a good job of later in the season. He started to blitz more. They're starting to run a little more few stunts on, on up front. The Eagles' talent is what's been getting them through. A big part for them is Avante Maddox. Looks like he might play. He uh, had a toe injury on Christmas Day against Dallas. Uh, He's been one of their low-key MVPs on defense. They can move once he's back in the side. You can move uh, Chauncey Gardner-Johnson back up to safety. Uh, the talent is what's saving them. The biggest problem for the Eagles is Kaiser White and T.J. Edwards. They've played decently well this year, but Shanahan's going to attack them, uh, make put them in. Uh, he's going to make them make decisions that I don't know if they're going to be capable of making. However, I will say the Eagles' offense versus the 49ers' defense is going to be a slugfest. They're two of. I think the Eagles are the most talented roster, uh, but it's a argument that anyone can be right on. That's gonna that's gonna be a knockout, dragout fight. It all comes down to Brock Purdy. Purdy's two shakiest games have been in the playoffs, but they've been enough to get by. Will the Eagles pass rush get to him? Because if the Eagles pass rush can get to him, I watched Brock Purdy at Iowa State. He's under pressure. He makes horrible decisions. 
So if Hassan Reddick and Josh Sweat and all those guys can get there, I think the Eagles can win. I think this is a huge coin flip game. If you had to ask me how confident I am the Eagles win, I would say 51%. Yeah, just to back up your point right there about Brock Purdy, he was 16 of 19 without pressure last week, 3 of 10 under pressure. So I I think you're dead on that getting after him is going to be the biggest key for the Eagles. The 49ers are going to come after hard after Jalen Hurts as well. I mean, Nick Bosa, who's someone I'm very familiar with, I've gotten bear hugged by him before. He when he gets his mitts on, you're not going anywhere. So if he can get get to uh, Jalen Hurts, his, he's going to definitely uh, make sure make his presence known in that game. And that 49er defense, I think, is good enough to where they can bring pressure with four and, and keep and make uh, Jalen Hurts beat them with his arm and kind of take away that dual threat capability that makes it that adds that extra di- dimension to that Eagles offense. So. I think it's going to be, like you said, that chess match, offense versus defense, but I think San Francisco has the edge there. It is the best offensive line in the NFL, though. But Nick Bosa's pretty good. So is Lane Johnson and Jordan Mailata. You should be scared of Nick Bosa. Everyone should be scared of yeah, Nick Yeah, <laughs> if you're not scared of Nick Bosa, you're a fool. Moving on to the other game in the AFC, Bengals-Chiefs rematch from last year's AFC championship game. I'm excited to see this one on the field again. I think that the Chiefs have a lot to prove. If there's any team that they have something to prove against in the NFL, it is the Bengals, the only team to beat them three times inside a calendar year since Patrick Mahomes became the starting quarterback. That said, the Chiefs still kind of feel like the team to go through to get to the Super Bowl. Again, I don't think the Bengals feel that way because they've had success against them. I think the Chiefs maybe could feel like they could play a little bit of an underdog card, but I also feel like they're more comfortable playing Big Brother, playing the AFC Dynasty role in this one. And and so I'm interested to see how this one plays out. I'm interested to see the press conferences as the week goes on because I think that the attitudes of the two teams coming into this one are actually going to be really interesting. It is, and I saw something earlier this week that said, or that was, the Chiefs started this game as a one-and-a-half-point one favorite, and now they're a one-and-a-half-point dog. And I think that's because we don't know if uh, Patrick Mahomes needs a new ankle. And I think he does need a new ankle. And if they can't get him a new ankle, and I'm saying I'm being facetious and putting it that way with that high ankle sprain, if that's something that's really going to hamper him, I can easily see the Bengals going in there and beating Kansas City because Mahomes is not going to be able to do the same things he did against Jacksonville, against Cincinnati. It's not to say that Cincinnati's defense is one of the top ones in the NFL because it's not. Statistically, it's not, but they are should be, be able to perform better than Jacksonville's defense did. I will say, though, that this Cincinnati defense has been great so far in the playoffs, and you guys know what EPA is. It basically measures how much does this play help you score. A good play on EPA is two points, up, and then for bad play, it's minus two. Minus means the team on defense is more like the score next time they have the ball. In the past two years, Cincinnati's defense against an eight games against Lamar Jackson, Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, Justin Herbert, and Aaron Rodgers have allowed EPA per play for those quarterbacks of minus .03. That's what Taylor Heineke did this year. So I will say with Mahomes on one leg, with the success they've had against those kind of quarterbacks, I don't want to say it's Cincinnati's game to lose, but it's kind of Cincinnati's game to lose. Yeah, I think that it's a team that steps up in big games. And I think we were going to see it in that uh, the DeMar Hamlin game, obviously against the Bills. They came out, it really seemed like they were saying, we're going to take this two seed from you and we're going to go into the playoffs with home field advantage when we play you again. They did it this past weekend to Buffalo. They did it against the Ravens back-to-back weeks there. Obviously, those games were close, but I think that Cincinnati was pretty well in control of those most of the way. It does seem to be a team 
that gets up for big games. And I think that that kind of starts with the quarterback. That's that feels like a Joe Burrow kind of thing. Like the just the the energy and the attitude that I think he's brought to that franchise is something that they've not had because uh you know, Zach Taylor whatever we feel about him as a coach, I don't see him as sort of an inspirational character in the locker room. I don't see him as like the, you know, the, the stereotypical leader of men as uh, old school football guys like to say. So, uh, but I think that, you know, Joe Burrow has really instilled this sort of confidence in the Bengals that, you know, why not us? Well, why aren't we as good as everybody else talent wise? Why can't we go and win a Super Bowl? And they almost did it last year. So I think that, you know, going in again, they're not going to play like they're afraid of the Chiefs. They have no reason to be afraid of the Chiefs, but I do think everything's going to come down to Patrick Mahomes and that ankle because if Patrick Mahomes is less than 100%, or if it's not Patrick Mahomes on the field, the Chiefs are a significantly lesser team, and he can do so much, so much damage that that covers up for a lot of flaws in that roster. But if he's 80% or less. Yeah, 100% advantage Bengals. So, per score predictions right now, start us off, Drew. This is my podcast, JT. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. Uh, I'm going to go 49ers 31, Eagles 30. And I'm going to say Bengals 28, Chiefs 24. All right, so then I'm going to say 49ers 27, Eagles 22. And then I'm going to say Patrick Mahomes gets a new ankle. (laughs) Chiefs 33, Bengals 31. I would say Eagles 23, 49ers 20, and then Bengals 31, Chiefs 21. Wow. Okay. So low-scoring games for Ryan this weekend, it looks like. Obviously, the – the Chiefs predictions comes with the caveat that we don't know what's up with Patrick Mahomes. And that could be a very different ball game. Very excited though for both of these games. I think they're both going to be great. Two two really good matchups. It feels like we got the right four teams here based on how everyone was playing down the stretch this season. So again, a great NFL playoffs and we'll talk more about it next week as uh, we find out who our Super Bowl matchup will be. That'll do it though for the Daily Sun Sports podcast. I want to thank Ryan and JT for being here. Thank you as well to Jeff Shane and Cody Hills who joined me earlier. Thank you to you for listening to us. We appreciate everyone who's willing to give us some time from their week to hear the things that we have to say and uh, we hope you enjoyed doing that. If you're listening to us on Google Play, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, I have to ask you to like, rate, and review. That'll do it for this edition of the Daily Sun Sports Podcast. And until next week, we'll see you out on the playing fields. 